Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, and this is Last Week in the Church. Thanks for being with us. We begin this week with a war of words. Obviously, the dominant global news story today is the war between Israel and Hamas on the Gaza Strip. But in the 21st century, wars are not just about what happens on the battlefield. There's also a soft power war to try to claim the moral high ground. And in that contest, one of the new fronts that is emerging is a war of words between Israel and the Vatican, and also Christian leaders in the Holy Land. We will break down everything that is going on there. Secondly, we've got the Synod of Silence. So the Synod of Bishops on Synodality is continuing to unfold here in Rome under conditions in which participants have been actively discouraged from talking about what is actually going on, we will bring to you what we know about what is happening inside and what to make of it all. And then finally this week, we end with inside-outside. So the Vatican's trial of the century, the trial for various forms of financial crime against 10 defendants, including for the very first time in the history of the Catholic Church, Cardinal, who has been accused of embezzlement and misappropriation, that trial is lumbering towards a conclusion, which is anticipated this year, by the end of the year, that is. And what is increasingly becoming clear is that longtime Vatican veterans are suggesting that the people who have been placed in charge of this case, especially the chief prosecutor, are outsiders who simply don't understand what the Vatican is about. Now, this is either the predictable response of an old guard that feels its grip on power slipping away, or it is a legitimate beef that is going to raise questions about the integrity of whatever verdicts are handed down in this case. We will explain what the issues are and why it all matters. That and more is waiting for you on this week's issue, episode, you know, happening of last week in the church. So please do not go anywhere. Do not click away. We will be right back. So, notoriously, intelligence and wisdom are not the same thing. It is actually possible to be incredibly smart and also incredibly foolish. Footnote, it is also possible to be a total idiot and a great fool. My life is sort of a laboratory experiment in what happens when both of those things are true. But that's not our point here today. Our point here today is that history is replete with examples of the great mischief that can result when intelligence and wisdom become decoupled. If you want a refresher course in this point, by the way, I recommend you go see the brilliant new movie Oppenheimer, which is basically a three-hour meditation on precisely this point. However, the contrary is also true. That is, if disaster is often the result when intelligence and wisdom separate, triumph and amazement is often what happens when intelligence and wisdom come together. And this is a roundabout setup for a naked commercial plug because I'm here today to recommend a new piece of technology to you. It's a new app called Magisterium AI. And basically, it is an effort to combine intelligence, in this case, artificial intelligence, with the great spiritual and ethical wisdom of Catholic teaching. It is an app that is by now trained on more than 3,000 
official church documents. It is available in 10 languages, so pretty much any tongue you would, you know, wish to get an answer in. And what you can do is you can go on to this app and ask it questions ranging from really high-end egg-headed stuff to, like, explain the doctrine of transubstantiation or what were the issues in the Arian heresy, all the way down to the kinds of banal things that real people would ask, like, what's the deal with the Pope? Or, you know, the Virgin Mary, do you guys worship her? Like, what's the thing? You know, whatever your question is, this tool will give you cogent, insightful, well-written answers. So whether you are a priest who needs talking points for a homily, or you're a CCD teacher who has that one precocious kid in class that won't stop asking you questions, and speaking as the former precocious kid in class, I know how a annoying that slice of life can be. I raised it to a fine art. You know, whatever, you know, whatever your needs may be. I mean, if you're just an ordinary person with questions about the Catholic Church, because, I don't know, you read a Dan Brown novel or you watched Godfather 3 or whatever it is, this tool will be extraordinarily useful to you. It is the brainchild of our friends at Longbeard. That's a digital marketing and design company. They are the IT backbone of the Crux site and also of last week in the church. These people are geniuses. And beyond that, they're also salt of the earth, great people. And so whatever they touch basically turns to gold. This is the latest example of it. I highly recommend it to you. Now, I'm not gonna promise that if you, you know, use it, and by the way, you should, it's at magisterium.com, that's magisterium.com. I'm not going to promise you a full refund if you're not satisfied, because it's free, so you don't actually have to pay anything. What I will promise is that if you don't like it, you are free to send me a note telling me that. I will use another AI app to generate an automated response in which I have no rule whatsoever. I'm actually just kidding. I would pass your response along because I guarantee you the people at Longbeard want to get this right. So again, check it out. That is Magisterium AI online at magisterium.com. By the way, if this didn't convince you, and frankly, it's me, so why should it convince you? But if you want a more intelligent presentation of the argument for this, read my wife Elise's article on the Crux site. It is replete with insight and elan and verve, and it will lay out the case in very compelling fashion. Magisterium.com, check it out. All right, everybody, happy Tuesday to you. Happy Tuesday, October 17th in the year of our Lord, 2023. Today, October 17th, is a day that has been designated as a special day for prayer and fasting for peace in the Holy Land. That call was first issued by the Latin Rite Patriarch of Jerusalem, that's Cardinal Pierre Battista Pizzaballa. New Cardinal, and by new I mean, he was just given his red hat by Pope Francis in his consistory, that's the event for the creation of New Cardinals on September 30th. But this call to make today a special day of prayer and fasting has been issued by parties far and wide, It has been endorsed, for instance, by the U.S. bishops. It has also been endorsed by Pope Francis himself in his Angelus Address this past Sunday. So, look, I mean, you know, we will see 
what comes of this call for prayer and fasting, but if I may quote the famous play by Robert Bolt, A Man for All Seasons, yes, by all means pray, but in addition to prayer, there is also effort. (laughs) And so let's talk about the efforts to promote peace amid the spiraling war between Israel and Hamas and the Gaza Strip. We speak at a moment in which Israel is reportedly preparing for a massive ground invasion of the Gaza Strip. For all I know, by the time this video comes out, that ground invasion will already be underway. So what we know is this, that battlefield conditions are one thing. But in addition to that, there is also a contest between Israel and the Palestinians to try to claim the moral high ground in all of this. Israel wants to insist, and certainly (laughs) with some justification, that Israel is the victim in this conflict. That is, this began a week ago with a surprise attack by Hamas on Israeli targets that included atrocities that almost defy imagination in terms of the kinds of carnage that was visited upon Israeli targets. Now, the Palestinians, on the other hand, and of course, primarily Hamas, you know, want to argue that what is happening here is a kind of expression of outrage over what they would perceive to be decades of unjust Israeli occupation and brutality directed against Palestinians, especially in the Gaza Strip. Now, in that contest, what is becoming clear is that an emerging front here is what position is the Catholic Church, and in particular, the Vatican, going to take on all of this? This past weekend, that is Saturday and Sunday, we saw two new cycles, two new outbreaks of tension in terms of you know, who's saying what and whether it accurately captures the realities of the situation. On Saturday, there was a, well, the day before, on Friday, there had been a new statement from the patriarchs and heads of churches in Jerusalem. This is a body that brings together the leadership of the Catholic, Orthodox, Anglican, and Protestant churches in the Holy Land. They issued a statement on Friday about the conflict, which basically said that this new cycle of violence that is going on benefits no one. In particular, they called upon Israel to open up humanitarian corridors that would allow aid to reach the Gaza Strip and also express concern for violence that was being inflicted or for the consequences of the conflict that were being inflicted upon the civilian populations of Gaza. Now, in response to that statement, the Israeli ambassador to the Holy See, Raphael Schutz, issued a series of 10, and I want to emphasize this, 10 messages on X, which is, of course, the social media platform formerly known as Twitter, (laughs) 
This is a bit like Prince, right? During that period of time when we had to say the artist formerly known as Prince. But in any event, Schutz took to social media to describe this statement from the Christian leaders of the Holy Land as unfair, one-sided, and biased. And basically, Schutz's point is that the Christian leaders of the Holy Land never identified Hamas or Islamic Jihad as the authors of the assault of this war. In other words, as the people who started it, this statement never referred to the atrocities that were, that were delivered upon Israeli civilian populations, never acknowledged Israel's right to legitimate self-defense, and, and basically, in his view, suggested that there was some kind of moral equivalence between Israel defending itself and Hamas and its radical Islamist allies delivering a completely unprovoked and unjustified attack upon innocent civilian populations. Now, that played out during the course of Friday and Saturday, all of which set the stage for what happened on Sunday. On Sunday, Pope Francis, during his traditional noontime Angelus address, the first thing he said after the Angelus was over, after he led the Marian prayer that is at the heart of the Angelus, he addressed himself to the conflict in Gaza, basically said that he was following with great sorrow, heart sickness almost, what is happening on the Gaza Strip. He said his concern is especially with the innocent victims of this conflict. He mentioned children, the elderly, the sick, women, but also all innocent victims of this conflict. He called upon Israel to open humanitarian corridors. That, of course, echoed the call that had been made by the Christian leaders in the Holy Land. He said that humanitarian law must be respected in Gaza Strip. And then he went on to add as popes have since time immemorial, that violence solves nothing and that wars are always a defeat. And he emphasized that whether we're talking about the Holy Land or we're talking about Ukraine or anywhere else, Pope Francis said, wars are always a defeat. Now, in response to all of that, Israel's foreign minister, Ailey Cohen, made a phone call Sunday evening to British Archbishop Paul Gallagher. Gallagher is the Vatican's Secretary for Relations with States, and therefore he is effectively the Vatican's foreign minister, and so therefore Cohen was calling his counterpart in the Vatican essentially to issue a protest, basically saying that what Israel wants from the Vatican is a, quote, clear and unequivocal condemnation of the terrorist attacks carried out by Hamas. And Cohen went on to say that it is galling and offensive to hear appeals for protection of the civilian population in Gaza at the same time that Israel is burying 1,300 people who, as Cohen said, were victims of unjustified, unprovoked, barbarous attacks for the mere fact of being Israelis and for being Jews. 
And so basically what Cullen was saying is that he found the Pope's efforts to be even-handed offensive and inappropriate to the realities of the situation. Now, all this comes on the back of what has been growing tensions between Israel and what you might call Christian leadership, whether it's the Vatican or the Christian leaders in the Holy Land, about how to diagnose this conflict and what position to take on it. You know, we had a statement on October 13th from the patriarchs and church leaders of the Holy Land in which they expressed similar concerns for the civilian population of Gaza. That provoked a statement from the Israeli embassy to the Holy See warning against what they described as linguistic ambiguities and false parallelisms, that is, false moral equivalents between the use of force by Hamas and the use of force by the Israeli Defense Force to defend Israel against these attacks. And it also comes in the context of the fact that in a general audience on October 11th, Pope Francis had called for the release of Israeli hostages, also recognized Israel's right to legitimate self-defense. Now, those things were both welcomed by the Israeli ambassador to the Holy See. But shortly after that, Italian Cardinal Pietro Parolin, who was the Vatican Secretary of State and therefore the Vatican's top diplomat, gave an interview to Vatican News that is the state-sponsored media platform of the Vatican, in which he said that, yes, Israel has a right to defend itself, but that right has to be exercised with proportionality. That is, it should not you know, exaggerate, it should not go too far, and also emphasized again the need to protect civilian populations in Gaza and the need to essentially to avoid an escalation of the conflict. He actually explicitly called for de-escalation. That is a term that offends many Israelis who believe that, you know, no one called for de-escalation in the Second World War when we were trying to defeat the forces of Hitler. Nobody called for de-escalation when we were trying to defend, to defeat ISIS. So why are people calling for de-escalation now? Basic point here is this, that as this conflict continues to unfold, and bear in mind that we are entering a phase now in which what Israel is likely to be doing is no longer going to be perceived precisely as self-defense. It is going to be taking the fight to Hamas to try to make sure that these kinds of unprovoked attacks don't occur again. It is quite likely that Christian leaders in the Holy Land, and for that matter the Vatican, will be taking positions both publicly and privately that are at odds with what Israel wants to hear. And so the reality is that relations between Israel and the Vatican, which, quite frankly, were not that great before this conflict began, because not only did we have the fact that three decades after Israel and the Vatican signed a fundamental agreement in 1993, which created diplomatic relations, three decades later, we still don't have an agreement on the legal and tax status of Catholic institutions in Israel, which the Israelis had promised 
would be negotiated swiftly after that fundamental agreement. Three decades later, we still don't have it. We also have a climate in Israel in which Christians, both ordinary Christians, but also the leadership of Christian churches, are increasingly subject to harassment from ultra-Orthodox Jewish groups in Israel. I mean, there have been a number of incidents of spitting attacks on Christians in Israel. All of that was true before this war broke out, but now the competing diagnoses of, you know, basically speaking, who can claim the moral high ground and whether Israel has the right to carry out the kinds of assaults that are presently being anticipated, all of that is something upon which the Vatican and Israel are going to differ. Let me just throw in two other factors here very quickly that are relevant. One, the Vatican, although of course it claims to be an international organization, is to a very great extent influenced by climates of opinion in Europe and especially Italy where the Vatican is located. Now, the most recent poll in Italy suggests that while 63% of Italians sympathize with Israel after the Hamas attacks, only 25% of Italians would support a ground invasion in Gaza, and pro-Palestinian rallies over the weekend broke out in a number of Italian cities, including Florence, Venice, Bari, and elsewhere. Those are the realities that Vatican officials are going to be seeing as they go to work and as they come home. That certainly will weigh on the way they think about this. The other reality is that Pope Francis is the first pope from the developing world, from the global south. His attitudes on these things do not parallel the attitudes of the United States, where support for Israel is simply an unquestioned and fundamental principle of American foreign policy. His attitudes are much closer to, say, Brazil or India or China, you know, members of the BRICS alliance of nations. What all of that suggests is that when the dust finally settles from this war in Gaza, and we start trying to list the casualties, it may well be that relations between Israel and the Vatican are among those casualties. I don't know that it's going to be fatal, but it's certainly they're going to be listed among the wounded. We will see how all this plays out. All right, second up this week, the Synod of Silence. So the Synod of Bishops on Synodality continues to play out here in Rome. Now, to be honest, you know, its prominence in terms of the global news agenda has to some extent been hijacked, obviously, by the war in Gaza. But nevertheless, you know, it continues to go on. The Pope, at the beginning of all this, imposed a kind of cone of silence over the whole thing, instructing participants that they were not to discuss what other people were saying in the Senate and what they themselves are saying in the Senate. So, to be honest, what we know about the internal conversations here is fairly limited, but I'll try to break down what we actually do know. So right now, the Synod is discussing the second of two what are known as modules, which basically is a term meaning topics, okay? So the first topic they discussed during the first week and a half or so of the Synod was toward a synodal church they are now discussing the topic of communion, participation, and mission. Now, you might legitimately ask, 
why does the Vatican call these things modules? Why don't they just say topics? Well, here's the thing. The Vatican makes a fetish out of its uniqueness, out of how it's not like any other institution on earth. So in the Vatican, if you were ever faced with a choice between using a word that is like common and that everybody understands or using a word that nobody has any idea what the hell you're talking about, you will always go with that second obscure term. For instance, why is every department in the Vatican called a dicastery? We've got like the dicastery for bishops and the dicastery for the faith. What in God's name does that mean? Well, here's, I actually know what it means. Dicastery comes from the ancient Greek term dicasterion. It was a law court in ancient Athens. But that makes me one of like 12 eggheads on the face of the planet that actually know what that means. Why don't they just call them departments, right? I mean, that's a word that everybody understands. Well, the reason they don't do that is because they want you to think the Vatican is different than the whole rest of the world. And so it is in this center. We've got modules, not topics. Anyway, what is going to happen today is that within this second module on communion, participation, and mission, participants are now discussing the nature of ministry in the church, which is the natural place where the issue of participation by women in ministries, including maybe, for instance, the diaconate, this is where that would come up. They're going to wrap that up today. Tomorrow, they will begin discussion, discussing issues of governance and authority, which will include questions such as how can local and regional and continental assemblies of the church be strengthened with the participation of maybe laity, including women and so on? Also, how can the Senate of Bishops itself be transformed into a more effective instrument of dialogue and shared governance and so on. Now, you might legitimately ask, well, okay, but you know, what is actually being proposed and debated on these issues? The, the answer to that question is, frankly, we don't know. Because in the old days, you could actually interview participants at the end of each day's sessions to ask them these questions. Now that has been verboten, forbidden, banned by, by the Pope and Senate organizers. We do occasionally get briefings. So, for instance, the other day, Cardinal Gerald Lacroix of Quebec was part of a Vatican briefing in which he said, there is no polarization whatsoever in the Senate on issues such as women and outreach to the LGBTQ plus community. Now, I can tell you for a fact, I have spoken to other participants in the Senate who say, well, you know what, that's not exactly true. I mean, the, the, there has been an exchange of views on this question, and it's clear people have different opinions. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think it is worth reminding ourselves of this point, that this Senate of Bishops is merely preparatory for another Senate that is going to take place on October 2024. So it's unrealistic to expect hard and fast conclusions from this group. And anyway, before the Senate even started, Pope Francis took many of the most important questions off the table by issuing his own ruling 
on the blessing of same-sex unions, basically saying it's okay on a case-by-case basis. On women clergy, saying, well, the answer for now is no, but it needs more study. And on communion for divorced and remarried Catholics, reiterating his view that it's fine, again, on a case-by-case basis. So, I guess my caution is to not expect thunderbolts at the end of this process. I think what we're going to find is that what we get is a kind of invitation to further reflection and conversation that will satisfy some and frustrate others to no end who wonder, why did we devote an entire month of our lives to a conversation that doesn't have any clear result? Obviously, we will continue to track all of this on the correct site. What I can tell you for now is that conversations about structures of collaboration, participation, and shared decision-making are ongoing. Where exactly they're going to lead us, I have no idea. We will see. Finally, this week, we've got Inside Outside. So the Vatican's trial of the century on financial crime is continuing to unfold. This month, we're hearing presentations from defense lawyers. Verdicts are expected by the end of the year, probably sometime in December. What is becoming increasingly clear is that many longtime Vatican insiders, supported by the defense attorneys, are charging that the people in charge of this case, particularly Chief Prosecutor Alessandro Didi, are such outsiders to the Vatican, they just don't know what they're doing. You know, complaints have been made, for instance, that one defendant in this case who was a consultor to the Vatican has been charged with embezzlement. That is a crime that requires you be a public official of the Vatican, which this individual never was. So the charge, actually, under the Vatican's own legal code, doesn't make any sense. A couple of other defendants who were leaders of the Vatican's Financial Information Authority, its anti-money laundering watchdog, are being charged with failing to block a payment by the Secretary of State when, under the statute of the Vatican, they had no authority over the Secretary of State. They had no ability to tell the Secretary of State they couldn't do this. So the issue is, if you don't know what the Vatican's own law says, what are you doing prosecuting people? Now, you know, defenders of the prosecution will say, look, this is just the old guard trying to claim that any threat to our grip on power is bad. On the other hand, many other observers would say, look, this raises real questions about the integrity and the sincerity, not simply of this trial, but of the broader financial reform Pope Francis has attempted to launch, and and therefore may actually eviscerate both the legal and the moral credibility of whatever verdicts are reached in this trial. We'll hear more about this later this month as other defense presentations are made, and obviously we will stay on top of it and bring you the latest. All right, that is our show for this week. Again, you can find full coverage of all of these stories on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. We will be back here next week Same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, have a fantastic and blessed week. And if you can spare a moment today, do remember, if you can pray, fast, whatever, for peace in the Holy Land, God knows 
that piece of real estate could use it. And I'll be joining you. That's our show for this week. Thank you for being with us. We will talk to you again very soon.